Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Daniel, and we'll pick up in chapter number 8. I actually like chapter number 8, because Daniel is a tough book with some tough prophecies to interpret. But chapter 8 is where we really get a clear interpretation uh, of the passage, and I think God had a purpose in that, because the fulfillment of these prophecies is absolutely amazing. You can look back at a, these prophecies were made uh, some uh, 500 years uh, before Christ uh, and, and they speak of events that take place hundreds of years later and they're fulfilled 100% uh, accurate. I mean, the, the prophecies are 100% accurate. They're fulfilled to the T. I mean, Daniel doesn't, doesn't miss anything. And so, so the fact that we have the interpretations uh, makes it clear that, that uh, uh, we can compare it to history and makes it clear that, that, that God can uh, prof- uh, speak through his prophets. So let's pick up in chapter number 8, and, and we're going to go back in time a little bit. Uh, I remember I've told you before, Daniel was not written in uh, chronological order, and so... Uh, he, he goes back and forth sometimes. And he's going to go back to the days of Belshazzar in, this, in chapter number 8. And uh, we're going to see his second vision. We saw his first vision in uh, chapter number 7. And the second vision that we see in chapter number 8 uh, begins a series of visions that primarily relate to the nation of Israel. And what's really interesting here, if you were a scholar, I'm not, I don't profess to be a scholar, but scholars who look at the original text show us that Daniel wrote the first seven chapters, or at least most of the first seven chapters, in Aramaic. And he begins to write in Hebrew in chapter number eight. And so there's a point in that, and that point is that uh, he's speaking to, probably his point was to speak directly to the nation of Israel because these prophecies are so closely related to them. Some of them will be related to the world, but most of them relate uh, to uh, the nation of Israel. So let's go to chapter number eight. Pick up with me in verse number one, and and we get the we get this uh, an introduction to this vision in chapter in verse number one of chapter eight. He says, "In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me." Then he says, "To me, Daniel, to me." I mean, that's kind of an amazing thing. I mean, Daniel was a humble man, He's, and he'd already had a vision. He had already interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's vision, and he said, you're not going to believe this. But in the third year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, hey, a vision appeared to me, and it was some vision. I mean, we're going to see it was some vision. Uh, the one, uh, after the one that appeared to me the first time. So this is my second vision, and we saw the first one in chapter numbers 7. Now, this vision takes place about 551 B.C., about 10 years before the fall of Babylon, if you want to kind of date the vision. All right, then in verse number two, he says, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, or Susa. Susa, uh, as that word can be translated one or two ways. Shushan or Susa, same place. Uh, the citadel, which is, the, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ule. Now, that's, that's, quite a, that's quite an experience. Here was Daniel. He's in ba- the city of Babylon. And suddenly he's transplanted, transported all the way into Persia 
to Susa. And, and you got to ask the question, why would God take him there? I mean, why didn't he just let him stay in Babylon? Because Sushan or Susa becomes, would later become the capital of the Persian Empire. And I think that's the reason God brought him to that particular city at that time. Actually, if you look in, you don't have to turn there now, but if you look in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, and Esther chapter 1, verse 2, that's where you're going to find Esther, and that's where you're going to find Nehemiah, because that became the capital of the Persian Empire. And so that's where Nehemiah was, and that's where Esther was. And so that, that city has uh, great relevance to the Jewish nation. But anyway, in verse number 3, it says, Then I lifted up my eyes, and I saw there standing beside the river a ram, which had two horns. Now, we've, we've learned from prophecy, when we see a beast, what does the beast represent? It represents the nation or the empire. The horns represent who? The leader. So I saw a ram which had two horns. So, and two, the two horns were high. I mean, they were the greatest leaders of that empire. But one was higher than the other. Now, what does that tell us? That one of the leaders became greater than the other leader. The highest one came up last. So, uh, man, you talk about lining up perfectly with history. This, this, this prophecy lines up perfectly with history. Because we're going to see that what he's talking about there is the empire of Media and Persia. And Cyrus the Great was the stronger leader. And eventually Persia assimilated Media into the empire. And, and there still were two leaders, but Cyrus was pretty much the man in charge. And so... Um, uh, we, we don't have to guess at this. And this is what's, like I said earlier, this is what's great about chapter 8 of the book of Daniel. You don't, you don't get my opinion on this. I can tell you exactly who these character players are in this, in this chapter. Look, jump ahead with me to verse number 15. And let's kind of introduce that. We'll come back and we won't get this whole chapter tonight. So that's why I want to go uh, to get the interpretation uh, beginning in verse number 15. It says, Then I happened when I, Daniel, had seen uh, the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. Someone much greater than a man, but he had the appearance of a man. Now I wonder who that was. Who do you think maybe that was? No, it wasn't Gabriel. It was none other than Jesus Christ. And in verse number 16, I heard the man's voice, and he's, he's giving orders to Gabriel. So, so look at verse number 16. And I heard the man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the visions. In other words, give him the interpretation of the vision. So he's giving orders to Gabriel. So I have no doubt that this is uh, none other than, than Jesus Christ. So, so uh, uh, how could it be Jesus Christ? I mean, Jesus Christ wasn't even born yet. Well, we saw last week that who is Jesus Christ? He's the ancient of days. As Micah says, his goings forth are from everlasting. As the author of Hebrews said, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. As Jesus himself said, before Abraham was, I am. So, so we have no problem uh, understanding that, that this is Jesus Christ. And he's telling Abel, Gabriel, uh, give Daniel the interpretation of the vision. So he came near, look at the next verse. We're still looking at the interpretation. So he came near where I, where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid. And I fell on my face, probably as dead. And he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the times of the end, or the time of the end. Now, I've got to tell you, 
Gabriel must have been some or is some kind of magnificent creature. I mean, here's the great prophet Daniel and he sees Gabriel and what does he do? He falls on his feet as dead. I mean, Gabriel is one of the greatest of the angels. I think he has equal power with Satan. You know, we attribute Satan way too much power. Now, I got to tell you this, Gabriel's uh, uh, light years more powerful than any of us. And so is Satan. But we attribute him way too much power. He's still a creation, just like Gabriel was a creation. I think he's on par with Gabriel. And so we don't have to worry about Satan. Uh, We've got angels that are just as powerful as him. And God is infinitely more power than all the angels. Now, notice Gabriel refers here, looking back at the verse, he refers to the time of the end. Now, there's a great lesson right here for you guys that like studying prophecy. Be careful when you look in the Bible or when you're reading the Bible and you come to a passage that says the time of the end or says the latter days or says the last days because I think we misinterpret the meaning of those phrases. What does he mean by the time of the end? When does the time of the end begin? When the prophecy was given from that point on to the time Jesus Christ returns and sets up his kingdom, that is the time of the end. The time of the end is not necessarily the great tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's the events that lead up to the uh, great tribulation and lead up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in the Bible, whenever you see the last days, you can't interpret that to mean necessarily those seven years before Christ returns. And a lot of prophecy guys do that. And when you do that, you make a mess of prophecy. That's not what it means. So, uh, so he, he says, hey, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Actually, the events that are going to take place in this particular vision are all going to take place within about 300 years of uh, Daniel receiving the vision. Even, they take place before Jesus is even born. And so, obviously, the time of the end uh, or the last days begin whenever Someone says the last days from that point on or when you see the last days in the Bible, it refers to the time of 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 the time that is left from the time the word is spoken until Jesus returns to this earth and establishes his kingdom. And, and that's why when I hear people go to go to like uh, Paul's letters and when Paul says in the last days, man will become lovers of themselves. Oh, look, we're in the last days because men are lovers of themselves. The last days were the days after Paul spoke those words. And men have always been lovers of themselves. I mean, I, I mean, we didn't all of a sudden become lovers of ourselves in the United States just in the last 20 years. Now, we might, it might be getting worse. And I think that's the message of the Bible, that things get worse and worse and worse and worse as we approach the time, the, the real time of the end when Jesus Christ returns. But, but uh, whenever you see the last days, don't, don't try to say, well, that speaks of, the, you know, the days of the tribulation, the days of the return of Jesus Christ, because it doesn't necessarily speak to that. That is part of the last days, but that's not the last days. Everybody got that? All right, now let's go to verse number 18. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. In other words, he got so scared he passed out. And I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground and he touched me and he stood me upright. Now you talk about power. I mean, I don't know if he could do that with my wife when she's in a deep sleep, but, I, but uh, uh, 
He's got some power. I mean, here's, here's Daniel. He's in a deep sleep and Gabriel touches him and wham, he's standing up again. And he said, verse number 19, look, I am making known to you what will happen in the latter time. There's that latter time. And he's going to talk about events that are going to take place really from a historical standpoint in the near future. It's really not the last days that we think of when we think of the tribulation and the, and the uh, second coming of Christ. So, he's gonna, so, so you don't want to interpret this based upon the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. You want to interpret it as happening sometime after Daniel was given this prophecy. All right, he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time. He says, a time of indignation for at the appointed time of the end shall be. All right, and all of these events he's saying are going to lead to the very end. They're going to lead to, to God's plan, uh, or they're part of God's plan to usher in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, these events do refer to the last times. All right, we'll see. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit more here in a minute. Now he gives the interpretation in verse number 20. And so we have no doubt about this. He tells us who it is. The ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So, so we don't have to debate that. And then uh, look at verse Let's go back to verse number four now. We got the interpretation for the first part of the vision. Let's go back to verse number four. And we get the, the second part of the vision. And he says, I saw a ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. So the Median Persian Empire became the greatest empire on earth. Babylon couldn't stand up to him. None of the other nations could stand up to him. They, did, they went wherever they want, did whatever they want, and they conquered the entire civilized world. All right. And then in verse number five, and he says, and I was considering, and suddenly a male goat came from the west. Now here the, here's, here's the media Persian empire, the, the greatest empire on the earth, one of the greatest empires ever to rule the earth. And it looks like, I mean, they, they were so great, they lasted a couple of hundred years. And it looked like they were going to go on for a millennium, that they were going to last for a thousand years. But suddenly there arises an even greater empire. And that's what we want to look at next. And I was considering, and suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. Now, what do you think he means when he says without touching the ground? I mean, he was going so fast. It's kind of like Winford on his motorcycle. He goes so fast he doesn't even touch the ground. Goes over a hill and just keeps flying. Uh, he's going, this army's moving so fast that it's as if it doesn't even touch the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Now what would that tell you? A notable horn would tell you it's somebody very famous. A very famous leader. Maybe one of the greatest leaders ever, to, to military leaders ever to, to, to walk this earth. And so... He's, got a, he's a notable horn, somebody famous. And then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with, a, with, with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. So this, this goat is so much more powerful than the ram. This ram seems invincible. And this, this notable leader of the goat, takes, takes this, this, this army and uh, he breaks the two horns and the media Persian empire is defeated. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So we know that 
that uh, this particular nation totally defeated the media Persian nation. Just like Babylon seemed invincible, the Medes and Persians seemed invincible. Just like the United States seems invincible, uh, nations aren't invincible. When they have served their purposes in God's plan, God will move another nation in to take their place. And so all of this is part of God's plan. Now, we don't have to guess who the goat is. We're told in the interpretation. Again, this is an absolutely amazing prophecy because this is, you're reading history in this prophecy. And this was written 200 years before the fall of, uh, actually even more than that. Uh, uh, Well, 210, 220 years before the fall of the Median Persian Empire, before Alexander the Great came on the scene. So look at verse 21. Let's jump to the interpretation. Pick up where we left off last time. He said, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is its first king. And we all know if you had studied history at all, you know that the first king of Greece was none other than our, the Grecian Empire. Now, actually, uh, actually, uh, Alexander's father was the first king of Greece. But Greece was nothing more than a city state at that point. But when it became an empire, the first king of that empire... Uh, was none other than Alexander the Great. As for the broken horn and the four that, as for the, uh, wait a minute, did I jump ahead? No, 21. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with power. Now, again, Daniel wrote about this some 200 years before the the, the Grecian Empire and the fulfillment of this prophecy is 100% uh, exact. I mean, I'm, I mean, there's not, I mean, it's just absolutely amazing when you, when you read history, you read about the intertestamental period and then you read these prophecies and the fact that, that Daniel was given this vision and it's right on with future. Now, what, that doesn't surprise you if you really believe in an omniscient God. It doesn't surprise you at all that he can predict the future because he not only can see the future, he makes the future. So obviously he can predict the future. Now, Alexander the Great, that guy was a character. Um, And as I mentioned in a study a while back, Alexander the Great, when he came into Jerusalem, actually saw a copy of the book of Daniel. One of the priests brought a copy of the book of Daniel to him to show him uh, this prophecy and when Daniel saw the prophecy he was amazed and spared the city of Jerusalem and, and uh, went to the temple to worship so just a little side note there now just as the prophecy says right here Alexander virtually flew across the earth he had an army of 35,000 soldiers he never lost a battle but Alexander's greatest goal wasn't to win battles. It wasn't to, to uh, steal the riches from countries, to ravage the land. That wasn't his purpose. His purpose was to Hellenize the civilized world. Now, what does it mean to Hellenize? It means to make it Greek. To, Dan, uh, Alexander was probably the, one of the first people who, I mean, actually Nebuchadnezzar was too, but who advocated a one world order. 
mean, he believed in a common language, uh, and so uh, he, he immediately, when he would conquer a land, he, he would send in teachers, he would send in uh, settlers into that area, and they would speak Koine Greek. And he would require that Koine Greek be spoken. Koine Greek is the common Greek, the high Greek. And uh, so uh, it was his purpose not only to have one language, but to, to have one culture. And so he wanted, to, to, he wanted people studying Greek philosophy. He wanted people speaking uh, the Greek language. He did allow nations to keep their own gods, but he wanted them to study the, the Grecian gods too. And he never lost a battle. I mean, with 35,000 soldiers, he defeated armies much, much larger than that. Uh, his victory over the Persians came at Nineveh, some, uh, a little town near Nineveh, in 331 B.C. And uh, just as the vision states right here, the, the victory was quick. It was decisive. And in, in just 12 short years, Alexander conquered the civilized world. It took him 12 years. 12 years. That's all it took him. And verse number 8, going back to, to the original prophecy now, verse not the interpretation, but verse number 8. He says, therefore the male goat, who we know is Greece, grew very great. But when he became strong, the huge horn was broken. Now, you ought to be able to figure that out. Who's the huge horn? Alexander the Great. Well, he's broken, which means more than likely he's killed or he, he, he died. Uh, and in the place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. So what's that saying is that the Grecian Empire was broken into four parts. Okay? Now, here's what happened to Alexander. Once he defeated the Persians, that wasn't enough. He set his eyes on the eastern part of the world. So he headed into India with those 35,000 soldiers. He headed all the way into Afghanistan. And I don't think he liked what he saw when he went to Afghanistan. And he said, this, you know, there's no more worlds to conquer. So he turned around. He went back to Babylon. And at the age of 33, different accounts on what caused his death. Some say it was a drunken stupor that caused his death. And the reason he was drunk was the fact that he was depressed because he had no more worlds to conquer. Others say that, that uh, he caught malaria. Probably it was a combination of all those things. But anyway, at the age of 33, he died. And, and uh, uh, when he died, uh, the kingdom ends up being divided among four kings. Now, that's not the way it starts out. Several of his generals, they, his son was too young, uh, so they wouldn't, wouldn't uh, bring his son in as king. And later, one of the generals would have his son assassinated have some of his relatives assassinated. Uh, so uh, this general was trying to take power. Uh, one of the generals, Atagonus, uh, tried to take over the whole empire. Uh, and then the other generals aligned themselves with each other. And anyway, in all the, the battles that took place, and when the dust settled, there were four generals left. Just as Dan, not three, not five, four generals who divided up the civilized world. Uh, just I'll give you their names. Cassander assumed the rule of Macedonia and Greece. Uh, Lysimachus uh, took most of Asia Minor. Seleucus, you've heard of the Seleucid Empire, took most of Syria and Babylon. And Ptolemy, you've heard of the Ptolemies, uh, took most. Uh, you can pretend you did, but if you hadn't. 
You put, took most of uh, Egypt and Palestine. You don't find these things in the Bible. But are they important? I'll I make a point in a minute that they are. Uh, they're, they're probably just important. It's just as important as some of the biblical events that we read about. All right. Now, here's what, here's what I want to head right now. The rule of Alexander that, that begins when he defeats uh, somewhere around 330 B.C., but he's conquered the world around, three, uh, uh, around that time. Uh, it doesn't take long, 12 years. So around 340 B.C., around 330 B.C., he's conquered the world. Uh, this begins what's known, and you might have heard of it, the interbiblical period or the intertestamental period. It's the time, some people, you know, there's, there's a game of semantics played with this because some people date it from the time of Malachi to the time of Matthew. But most scholars date the interbiblical period as the time between uh, uh, Alexander the Great's conquering of the civilized world, the, the, the rise of these four generals, and the book of Matthew. And that's where I would date it too, uh, because we don't really have much, uh, uh, much uh, information about this time. Now, I've heard a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people from the pulpit act as if somehow God during these years was sleeping, or God was totally silent our God had abdicated his throne and just said I'm going to leave the world alone until my son comes no we know better than that don't we God never sleeps or slumbers God always speaks if people will listen and God never abdicates his throne never he's always on his throne and so I believe that the historical events that take place in the intertestamental period or in the uh, uh, interbiblical period, however you want to call it, are just as important to God's plan for the end times, and the end times being that time bring, leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, as the, the, the events we have recorded in the Bible. So it's important that we, you know, I think it's maybe not as, certainly not as important as studying the Bible, because the Bible is, has different purposes. It's not, it's not so much a history book. It's a, a book that leads us to Jesus Christ and, and shows us how to live the Christian life. But, but the history in the Bible is important, but the history in the interbiblical time is important too. We, uh, we need to study that. And, and, and I challenge you, if you get a chance uh, uh, outside of the, the church to, to study the interbiblical inter period. A uh, couple of books, a couple of references I'd give you to, if you wanted to, if you are interested in studying about uh, this particular time period is Robert Cates' book, A History of the Bible Lands in the Inner Biblical Period. Robert Cates, a real little, short little book. You can get it for like 10 bucks. Uh, it's called A History of the Bible Lands in the Inner Biblical Period. Robert Cates with a C, yeah. Then the other book, and I hesitate to go here because some people say I'm a heretic because I'm leading you into the Apocrypha. But the other books that I would recommend you read are the book of Maccabees out of the Apocrypha. Especially Maccabees 1 and Maccabees 2. And, and they line up very well with history. Maccabees 3 and 4, you know, you get in, it gets kind of questionable there. 
but especially Maccabees 1 and Maccabees 2. They lined up with the writings of Josephus, uh, who was a historian, and, and several other secular historians. Uh, and so uh, they're very accurate, and they give the Jewish perspective of this time period. And some very important things happen during this time period. Some very important things. One of the most important things that happened during the interbiblical period was the translation of the Old Testament into Koine Greek. It's what we know as the Septuagint. Uh, very important. Because I don't believe you can study the New Testament without the Old Testament. I don't believe you can do that at all. And when all these letters were being passed from church to church, they, they reference over and over again the Old Testament scriptures. And so there was a need. God knew there was going to be a need. If there was, he was going to put the New Testament into Koine Greek, then there was going to be a need for the Old Testament to be in Koine Greek too. And so here goes Alexandria uh, across the world. And every, t- every time he stops in a city, he sets up a city-state. And he, puts a, he brings in Greek settlers. And he, and he puts in a, a Greek government and, then, and, 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 and uh, institutes or begins, forces the culture to become a Greek culture. And part of that uh, process was to have them speak Koine Greek. So, so one of the important things is the Jewish scriptures were uh, established during this time. The establishment of the synagogue took place during the interbiblical period. As the Jews were being scattered and couldn't get to Jerusalem and Jerusalem had been destroyed, then the synagogue comes up during this time. It's important to study the history of the synagogue because the synagogue is the prototype for our church, for the church of Jesus Christ, the assembly of born-again believers. I mean, we, we kind of have modeled that, and I don't think somebody just said one day, well, let's do it just like the synagogue. I think that was God's intention. He... he uh, uh, gave the people the synagogues and they learned to worship in the synagogues. And then when, when all of a sudden uh, Christ came and they became Christian Jews, then, then they, they modeled their assemblies after the synagogue. So that's important to us. Uh, Greek and Arabic became the common languages of the Jewish people. That's important. Uh, and then, you know, here's why I recommended you read the book of Maccabees. The Maccabean revolt took place uh, which we're going to look at next week. Daniel's going to uh, give us some prophecies about the Maccabean revolt, and that's very important. What took place there, the Feast of Hanukkah, uh, but more importantly, the Jews uh, regained control for a period of time over Palestine and over Jerusalem because of this Maccabean re- revolt. And it takes place because of the abomination of desolations by Antiochus Epiphanes. And so those are very important events because when we, when we hear over, when Jesus speaks of the abomination of desolations he's refer, that Daniel spoke of, uh, he's referring to two events, to the one, uh, to the desolation of, uh, abomination of desolations by Tigus Epiphanes and the one that will follow that by the Antichrist. So, so those are important things to look at. Also, during this time, after the Maccabee revolt, the Hasmonean dynasty was what came up, and out of that came the Herodian dynasty, and no, most of you know about Herod. And it's really neat to study the history of how Herod got power, and then uh, how he began the construction, and why he began the construction of the temple. Anybody know why he began the construction of the temple? Well, read about it. 
I'll tell you why he began the construction of the temple. Because God put it in his heart to begin the construction. This pagan, brutally pagan king, he put it in his heart to give the Jews this, this great temple. The one in which Jesus would set foot in. The one they're fighting over right now, the, the, the wailing wall right now in, in Israel. Now, I, I promise you, if you study, you take some time to study those that time period. We're not going to do that. We, we'll get into it a little bit next week when we look at this, uh, the, the, the uh, abomination of desolations and we look at the Maccabean rebellion. But, but we'll get into it a little bit next week. But we won't get into the kind of detail you could get by reading Robert Cates' book. So I, I do highly recommend that. And maybe reading the book of Maccabees. If you can get some cheat notes on the book of Maccabees, that'd be great. Some cliff notes, something like that, that'd be great. Uh, save you a lot of time and, and, and weed out some of the stuff you don't want to deal with in those books. But anyway, if you study that time period, you'll discover very quickly that uh, God was not sleeping. That uh, he was not silent. That he had not abdicated his throne. What God was doing, he was using these empires and these leaders of these empires like puppets. Puppets in his hand in order to set up the coming of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul says over in Galatians chapter 4. Remember what he says? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law that we might receive the adoption of sons. I mean, all of this, all of this inner biblical period and all the biblical period, all of that was setting up, bringing the, the, the birth of Jesus Christ uh, who, to redeem those who were under law that we might receive the adoption as sons. I mean, what does he mean by the fullness of time? He means when God had everything prepared the way he wanted it to be prepared. When there was Koine Greek, when there was, when there was the Septuagint, when he had, he had the, the leaders he wanted in place, he had the leaders of, of the temple he wanted in place, the, the Jewish leaders in place. When he had all of that ready, he sent forth his son, and he wasn't going to do that until it was all ready. Now, it was, has God been working out some kind of uh, capricious plan over the centuries to, to get his son here uh, the first time and then the second time? I mean, is he kind of winging it as he goes? No. No. Uh, we'll see that in the book of Daniel when we see the prediction of the exact day when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. You'll see that right in the book of Daniel. This wasn't some capricious plan. God wasn't winging it. God knew before the foundation of the world exactly when Jesus Christ was going to be born. Exactly when he was going to be born. And so, so uh, 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 the, fulfill, the fullness of times was the date he had set. And that's why the Old Testament prophets can be so accurate. Because God's in charge of all of history. He's not just in charge of biblical history. He's in charge of secular history. There is nothing secular to God. Everything comes under his rule. Everything. Now, after Alexander had established his kingdom, and then his successors went into, into power, they immersed the entire civilized world into that Grecian culture. And uh, all of those things that I just talked about uh, were brought into place, the Septuagint, the Koine Greek, uh, which would be the original, New the, the language of the original New Testament uh, manuscripts, uh, 
it would be the primary language used in voicing the gospel when people spread the gospel. I mean, people spoke in tongues to some degree, but for the most part, it was the gospel was spoken in Koine Greek because most people could speak Koine Greek. Uh, not only did they do that, uh, those generals in Alexandria immediately began to build highways that connected all these city states. And those highways, along with the Roman highways, would be used by by the uh, followers of Jesus Christ to spread the gospel. And so that's, all of this was part of the fullness of time. All of it was part of God's plan. So from Daniel's standpoint, uh, it was all part of the end times. It was all part of the end times. I mean, everything God does is part of the end times. Not just the great tribulation, not just the second coming of Jesus Christ. Everything he does is part of the end times. And, and, and I think to some people today, they think that we're living in a time when God is just silent. A time when, when uh, God is asleep. A time when it seems God has abdicated his throne. God's not silent. I mean, you want to read his word, you can hear God anytime you want to hear God. God's not asleep. He never sleeps or slumbers, the Bible says. And he hasn't abdicated his throne. I mean, to some people, it looks like he's not in charge. It looks like the Democrats are in charge or the Russians are in charge or the Chinese are in charge or whoever you want to say is in charge or the Illuminati or the devil or his demons or whatever. But there's only one in charge. And that is Jesus Christ. And he never sleeps. And he never slumbers. And I believe as much as any time in the history of the world, right now he is orchestrating events for the fullness of times. Not for the fullness of times when Jesus would come to Bethlehem. But for the fullness of times when Jesus will come to this earth for the second time. So he's working it looks kind of strange out there right now. It looks kind of like nothing makes any sense, but it all makes sense to God. It's all part of his plan to usher in his everlasting kingdom. And hey, we'll, we'll, we'll see that soon, I think. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the encouragement of your word. We thank you for the book of Daniel and these prophecies that you gave us just to show us your sovereignty, Lord, to show us your omniscience, to show us how you know the future before the future even happens, Lord. You make the future. You're in the future. Lord, you're also in the present. And all the things that we're seeing going on right now are just part of your plan to bring about the second coming of our Lord. We just thank you, Lord, that you're working. When things look bad, the worse they look, you're, you're still working, Lord. And so we just thank you for the assurance we have in Jesus Christ. And we... we, we Say Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We say that in Christ's name, amen.